Hi there, and welcome to yet another episode of The Work. The Work is a podcast that I co-host with Brian Bong, Karen Furbin, colleague Gina Kelly, um, and we talk about the things that go on in our industry at a deeper level. Today, we're going to be spending time with Hung Lee, and if you haven't run across Hung Lee before, get your pencils out. Hung Lee is currently the curator of Recruiting Brain Food, which if you um, are scratching your head and you haven't heard of Recruiting Brain Food and wonder why it might need a curator, let me tell you that, that, that Hung Lee has established the premier destination site for people in the recruiting trades um, uh, around the planet um, and is the host of a burgeoning community of multitudes. It's, it's, it's really quite an incredible thing. So when you get off listening to this podcast, go see Recruiting Brain Food. Hung is a serial entrepreneur um, who ended up in this um, slot after building tech startups for a while. Um, and um, so he's got a grasp of the entire infrastructure. It's going to be a great conversation. How are you, Hung? I'm very well. Thank you, John. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm delighted to be here. All right. So so let's start by give me the give me the nickel tour of recruiting brain food. Recruiting brain food is you know what? It's 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 really quite hard to encapsulate what it is these days. I guess it's an online community of talent acquisition professionals these days. Um and uh it, that's serviced by newsletters, by online community discussions, by live streams, podcasts. Um, I see my job as basically trying to uh, support that uh, community uh, with uh, with content and conversation, basically. So, uh, and that can take take that can take the form of, uh, of 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 lots of different types of media. That's so. So it's it's a um, contemporary version of what used to be a trade show. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't call it a trade show. Um, I would say it is. Kind of an amorphous mess is probably the right way to describe it. All the bits don't necessarily work together in this in a smooth, designed way. Uh, but I like to see it as really a, an organic kind of uh, development of people having conversations about the topic of recruiting. Well, it seems to be sticky, and people seem to really treasure the newsletters that come through in the community conversation. So, great job! Keep at it. Um, let's, no, let's... thank you very much, man. Yeah, let's dig into um, into what's going on in recruiting. So in the U.S., the workforce hit a historic milestone last week. 80.2% of people of working age are currently employed. And because the number of people of working age is shrinking, that number is going to go up. And it hasn't been that it was that high once in about 2000, this 1999, 2000. But it's never been that high historically. And so so you have this dynamic with the shrinking size of the workforce and everybody having a gig. That means it's harder and harder and harder to find people who fit the sort of matching criteria to to get into your job. And while you can recruit passive candidates, the, the vast volume of recruiting to date has been about people who are already in play. Um, how do you think that's going to affect recruiting? And and do you believe that there's going to be a sustained labor shortage? 
I think it's been a conundrum for the last several years, hasn't it? Um, uh, you know, I think the, the term labor market paradox first emerged um, just immediately after the first six months of COVID, where, you know, we, we, we couldn't work out, you know, why we couldn't recruit all these folks, um, despite the fact that theoretically hundreds of millions of people had been made redundant during the first wave of COVID. So there should be this huge labor market that would be surging towards all these jobs. Um, and we, we couldn't fill them. Um, and that in some way, and that's kind of still been the persistent case. Um, and that's true, it seems, in, in different regions of the world. It's true in the UK, it's true in the US. Um, where we're beginning to understand this phenomena um, is that it's it's obviously multidimensional. And the fact that you mentioned that demographic change is significant, um, uh, there's also significant sectoral issues also. So in other words, the, the distribution of the need um, uh, where the vacancies are um, is particularly acute in certain places and certain sectors that maybe individuals don't uh, no longer want to uh, go towards anymore. So um, we're getting a little bit of a better understanding to explain what that paradox is. Um, uh, but uh, no one's still, uh, so nobody still has the the, the, fi the final answer uh, as to what it is. Um, although I think most people are confident that we're not going to solve it anytime soon um, because it seems to be uh, persistent over the last several years and uh, it, that's not shifting. Uh, people, are, it's still uh, particularly hard to attract people to certain types of work um, in uh, in almost every country that, uh, that still uh, has a growing economy. What what types of work when you when you think of the sectors that are having the most challenges, what what uh, what markets are those? Yeah, it's I think these are also going to pretty much consensus now. So healthcare, um, uh, we know there's a lot of people that are leaving healthcare due to the excess demands that they've had over the COVID period. Um, so there's huge amounts of vacancies going towards those types of roles. Um, people don't want to do those roles anymore. Why is that? probably because of pay, probably because of pay conditions and so on. Um, uh, we know it's things like uh, construction, big crisis on that. Um, uh, we know it's retail, particularly uh, food retail, customer service, those types of activities. Seems like it's the low paying jobs. I mean, uh, you know, it, when we take the helicopter view, it doesn't become surprising because it's the jobs that have uh, low pay, uh, uh, very low uh, work flexibility, um, low status, um, uh, those are the uh, those are the vacancies that are staying persistent, um, and I think it's because a lot of people have decided, you know what, there's better work out there. We don't want to do that type of work anymore. Yeah, I want to throw something out that that I was I was watching. Um, have, don't get to watch a lot of TV, but I watched Squawk Box this morning, and they were talking about the airlines because the airline pilots had been furloughed during COVID, and now there's this renewed interest in travel. Now we have training issues that we don't have enough trained pilots. And and John, I, I know that this is a topic that resonates with you as well. Um, so so do we have multiple issues going on here in terms of our, our talent pools? The answer, the answer is, I think, I think surprisingly simple. And, and the surprisingly simple answer is, Got multiple pieces to it. One, the fertility rate falling and have been falling for years, and so we have fewer people of working age. That's just a that's just a fact. And you can say that by saying that the median age of the workforce is going up, which everybody understands the workforce is aging. But the other side of that is there are fewer people in the workforce. 
Second thing is, in the United States, we have a surplus of people with college education um, um, because there's plenty of people to take jobs with college educations and not plenty of people to take low-paying jobs. And so it's not just that people don't want the low-paying jobs, it's that there's nobody there. It's that there's nobody there. And, and so, so it creates kind of an inverse skills problem at the bottom of the pile where you have, you have people, I have a book on my desk about the two million white males who are sitting on the side because they have college degrees and don't want to take low-paying jobs. And there's, there's a great big pile of people who would work if there was the kind of work that they wanted, but they aren't working. Um, and so then you go to uh, the, the consequence of shortages, which, is, which is, you see in the airline industry, and that is where we need people, we don't have people in place who are trained. I think that's a, lot, a large part behind why there's so much evolving emphasis towards skills as the backbone of recruiting, because we need to find people who are the easiest to train up. No, because we can't find the people who exactly fit. What do you think? This Alex? this feels like a hamster wheel to me. Hung, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, John's certainly first point. Um, I, I think the phenomenon's called, uh, and this is where we might kind of stride into a bit of political stuff. But the phenomenon's called uh, elite overproduction. Uh, so in other words, when we have um, uh, lots of very highly educated people whose expectations have been elevated, um, uh, but there is not sufficient work for those folks um, that kind of meet their expectations and therefore they effectively withdraw from the labor market. Um, or they end up doing other things like, you know, setting up a business, um, or they end up sort of uh, uh, kind of not taking the jobs that are pressing and the, the wider economy needs because uh, of this sense of um, ambition or hope that they have. Um, uh, now, this usually is a pretty bad thing for society because I think societies that basically have produced um, too many people with high expectations and where the need uh, cannot be satisfied uh, ends up exporting those people in, in potentially negative ways. Um, uh, uh, for instance, one of the arguments, again, this is where we, we stride it also into history. One of the arguments as to why there was like, uh, uh, the, 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 the period of the crusades, uh, was because that was an example of elite overproduction. Um, there were lots of aristocrats that basically had sons that didn't have stuff to do because they weren't, the, they were the second sons. Um, but they, they, they weren't going to get a job. Uh, they weren't suddenly going to turn into <laughs> tradespeople and certainly not farm for a living. So what do you do? You pick up your sword and you go and like uh, try and ransack some places. Um, <laughs> and that was, was, was essentially what, what they did. Um, so I, I think that the, the, this, if this is correct and this is a modern mm -hmm. phenomenon and people do dispute it, um, but if we are producing a bunch of people that have high expectations, highly, educate, highly educated, but we don't have the opportunities for them, um, then that's going to lead to some significant social issues. Um, and, and maybe we're already seeing that manifest in some of the, uh, uh, the arguments and debates that we're having in, in society right now. I think we might look back also and see that um, uh, economic growth depends on immigration. And here in the States, I, th I imagine it's true in the UK as well. We've splashed immigration to uh, absurdly low levels. And so 
So you might imagine that if economic growth rides on the availability of cheap labor from immigration, um, and you've got this group of people who aren't fitting in, part of the problem is that actual value creation in the economy and job creation in the economy is a derivative function of having immigration. And since we cut yeah. that off, yeah. the opportunity sphere doesn't open up as fast. Yeah, I think so. I, I think the certainly the Western world has a has a very schizophrenic approach to immigration. Um, I, I think we've generally not had a, a really honest sort of debate about the value that immigration brings to the economic system. Um, and principally, people don't understand the fiscal relationship we have with the state. Um, uh, an immigrant basically is human capital. Um, the person is coming in. Usually they are already beyond, so they're already coming in at a kind of a pre-built kind of uh, 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 situation. They're, they're over 18, they're ready to work. They're usually right in that sweet spot um, where the host society hasn't invested anything in them. They're just getting a free person, basically. Uh, right. You know, you haven't educated them. You haven't had to spend healthcare on them. You haven't had to do anything about them. They've just arrived and they're looking to work and add value to the to the economy. So from an economic perspective, an immigrant is excellent. However, from a societal point of view, um, we've not been able to handle that situation very well. Um, and we've seen, of course, uh, this being politically manifest. You know, you look at uh, Donald Trump sort of uh, first time around. I thought that was pretty much um, an anti-immigrant kind of nativist type of vote that he was able to secure. Um, you look at Brexit, for instance, that's a clear economic mistake by the UK. That was clearly an anti-immigrant vote. Um, and you see that happening in a lot of uh, sort of um, uh, democracies in Europe that, you know, are voting in leaders principally on the nativist position. Um, and it seems to be that that's going to be a pattern that's going to be difficult to resist. So we have this situation where we are depriving ourselves economically um, uh, in order to satisfy uh, a kind of some social anxieties. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, we've we've basically failed to make an argument for immigration. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll all collectively pay the economic price for that. So where does that leave? You know, I, I was reading, um, I think it was in Wall Street Journal that India has is, is uh, supplanting China in terms of population. Where does that leave countries like that? If if the Western countries are also caught up in their whatever their political agendas or social anxieties are, are we going to see these other countries pull far ahead in terms of business? I think people hope so, but at the same time, the, the, you can also have too much population. Um, and I think that's, that may be the case for India. Um, simply, India has historically been one of the most interesting studies um, when you look at um, the economy, you look at jobs, you look at immigration, you look at dem the, the demography. I remember doing a survey actually a couple of years ago in terms of like what were your biggest recruitment challenges when it went to all of the 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 the, the uh, subscribers to the newsletter. So we're looking at twenty five thousand people at the time or whatever, and something like two thousand of them filled it in and completed the uh, the survey. Um, and it was very conspicuous that the everyone else in every country said the number one problem was finding candidates. Uh, the only country, <laughs> the recruiters from uh, the only country that said that wasn't the top problem was the, uh, the, the, the it was India. So Indian recruiters did not have a problem with finding candidates. 
Their problem was actually assessing candidates and processing the volume. Um, so what India has as a problem is that they do uh, have, I mean, they've got a, such a, uh, a mixed environment. They've got highly educated, but also very low education, different places, high wealth in certain places, very low wealth in other places. So huge amount of inequity, but they do produce tons of graduates and there's not enough jobs in India for those graduates. Um, and so they've been able to export a lot of those people into different places, typically the US. And I, mm -hmm. I would say the US has clearly benefited from this. Um, you only have to observe, in fact, uh, some of the, the, the leading CEOs in, of tech companies mm -hmm. in the US are actually from India. Um, and, and that is, a, for me, a clear benefit. Um, however, um, uh, does it benefit India per se to export their best talent that way? Probably not. Um, they have to create the domestic sort of uh, 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 businesses that are able to uh, that are able to absorb that talent. Um, I do believe that the, the, the Modi government is trying to do that. Um, and I know he is a controversial figure, of course. A lot of people are very uh, 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 have a very strong opinion about uh, him and his direction of travel he's going. Uh, but he is an economic nationalist at the end of the day. Um, and he is looking to create national champions, both in hardware and software. And you can imagine that they will eventually become organized, uh, sort of big enough businesses to absorb some of the elite talent that, are, that is currently being exported. Um, but there's a long way to go. They're, it's a huge country, very complicated. No one's really going to be in control of something of that size and scale. You can only just, it's almost like nudging a whale. You know, you've got to hope for the best yeah. that it's going to go in a direction you want. Um, but it, yeah. it might just go in a different direction. So yeah. you know, even someone like Modi doesn't control everything. Interesting. Interesting. So let's take a hard turn here and talk about AI for the few moments that we have left. Everything you need, everything you need to know about AI and recruiting. So, <laughs> in the next eight minutes, please. In, in the next eight minutes, <laughs> let, let me start you with a um, um, a prompt. Um, so, so my view is that the business of believing that you can find a perfect match for a job has caused us enormous societal and professional problems in the recruiting industry. The idea that you have a requirement and somebody perfectly meets the requirement is responsible for large hunks of attrition problems. It's responsible for unrealistic expectations on the part of hiring managers. Um, and it's a technical idea perpetuated by job boards and applicant tracking systems that, that somehow what you want is a perfect match between requirements and people. Now you come to um, these rapidly emerging automated tools, which are, um, in, in my mind, faster ways of doing stupid things right now. We have, we have much faster, much more articulate ways of doing stupid things, like matching people perfectly. Um, and... Um, so I, I don't have much hope for the current wave of AI in recruiting. Um, and I wonder if you see it that way, or if you see some some sign of um, um, a bright light at the end of the tunnel here. Um, I, I should have prefaced this by saying I'm generally a doomer on most things, uh, guys. So um, I'm not going to say too many things that are overly optimistic, um, but that's just my nature. Um, but I would say I, I love the way you've conceptualized that, John, particularly with the idea that um, 
you know, our, our, our obsession with perfect fit is, is, is actually the wrong objective, perhaps. Um, and a lot of the, 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 the kind of energy that we spent in the world of uh, the work of recruiting has been misspent because that's the uh, kind of false objective that we've, we've created. I do agree absolutely with that idea. Um, and, and I think the reason why I agree with you on this is because um, I, the, the job is kind of created at when the, with the person who's doing it. Um, uh, you know, it's not just a static thing that someone does. Um, if I hired John Sumza to do a job, that would be a different experience to hiring, you know, Hong Lee to do that job. That job will actually slightly change because we've got two different people doing, maybe following exactly the same job description, but give it a week or two, we're going to be doing that job differently. Um, so, um, I think we are missing that dynamic, uh, kind of interaction between human and work, um, which, uh, which, uh, is, is the, the root cause I think of this lot objective of uh, finding perfect fit um the next this generation of ai though i think it will have significant impact in the world of recruiting because not that it makes the fit any better um uh, but i think it will make a lot of the work that we do it will shift the priorities of the work that human recruiters will do um if we break down the tasks that an average recruiter performs um and the distribution of time across those tasks um, I think that looks very different pre-AI compared to post-AI. Um, so the human being will still be doing some recruiting, um, uh, maybe doing a lot of recruiting, um, but the work that that person will be doing will be radically shifted by the advent of this new wave of technology. So what are they going to be doing? I have this theory I that, have... that, that when they, I have this theory that when AI takes over the world, human beings will do email. Um, is that is that? <laughs> well, that's boring. I, I think we were. That, that, that's. I thought I was a doomer, John, but you've just uh, uh, presented a vision, a vision of the world, which I think would uh, sort of be the uh, very dystopic. No, I would hope. So there's a pessimistic view, and an optimistic view. Um, let's take the the optimistic view. Um, optimistic view is that the AI will take care of a lot of the kind of information carrying that basically uh, a human recruiter currently does. Uh, you know, we move information from one part of the recruitment process to the next. Uh, we, 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 we broker the information. We carry it, if you like, almost like we're carrying a pail of water uh, from one part to the next. Um, uh, I hope that AI will replace that action because it's going to be more efficient. It's going to be more comprehensive, more accurate far less error rate, and it should release a huge amount of uh, capacity um, for work that recruiters can do that maybe AI isn't suited to do. Um, and I would argue that this work will be the, um, uh, the high-touch human connection type work um, where a lot of recruiting uh, still does uh, require uh, that sense. Um, so in other words, uh, I mean, the cliched argument would be say, oh, this means that human beings should be moving up the value chain, um, which would be a cynics way of viewing it. Uh, but I would think that's broadly, broadly right. Um, it would mean that AI would or automation and AI would take care of a lot of the, uh, the busy work that we're currently involved in. Um, but the human element, I don't think is replaceable yet by AI simply because the human on the other side would prefer a flawed human being uh, to have those conversations, to build that relationship rather than a perfect AI. Um, so I think that's the resilient part of the work that we do. 
All right. I think both my... John and I are bursting here. So, John, you go first. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I just, I just, I, I have a sort of a side turn question for you. My favorite quote about the entire recruiting morass is a resume is a list of the things you never want to do again. Um, um, <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think of that? I think it's absolutely right. Um, and in fact, it actually aligns very well with one of the previous businesses that I ran, Workshake, which is all about understanding that the uh, resume is historical data, um, the, the work that that person's done before. Um, but by the time you've actually created that document, the reason why you've created that document is because you don't want to do that stuff anymore. <laughs> you want right. to do something else. You want to get a new oh. job. The new job is the stuff you haven't done before. So, um, uh, you know, that's not collected. That's not uh, captured. Uh, Probably um, AI could help us figure out or even help the human job seeker figure out um, what those options might be. Um, you know, I think a lot of job seekers out there, for instance, get the sense that maybe they're dissatisfied with their career path or their current role, um, but they don't know enough about the potential opportunities out there in the wider market. And so they're not able to articulate what it is that they want. Um, I can see a positive role for AI to be able to support with that and perhaps provide recommendations based on AI's much uh, more comprehensive capability of processing uh, the opportunity information out there in the marketplace. Um, so yeah, there's there's positive things that will emerge from this as well as uh, some uh, some portentous ones. Yeah, so so that's where I wanted to go. What about the nefarious aspects of AI? So, you know, I, I get the process improvements and all this wonderful knowledge sharing, but there's also an opportunity for bias. And, and once that takes hold, that's kind of a runaway train. So what about the nefarious aspects of AI in recruiting? Uh, the, I think the nefarious uh, could could go up apocalyptic gene, right? So it, it, the, the, there's like so many levels of of, of Dante's hell we could go down. Um, that, uh, but if we take the first one, which is okay, AI is gonna let's say amplify bias, um, or at least present its own version of bias. Um, I would say that's broadly broadly correct. Um, and in fact, again, we're seeing arguments as to what type of bias is currently uh, sort of occurring at this point. We we have to bear in mind that the AIs are currently pre-trained. The, that's the, the P and the GBTs. The pre-training involves a lot of human beings clicking yes or no and rejecting or accepting AI-generated uh, outputs. Um, so you have to think, okay, why is that human being saying yes to that and no to the other thing? Uh, presumably that human being is carrying in some sort of value system in order to make that assessment. Um, uh, now, there is currently an ongoing argument as to, okay, a human being shouldn't do that at all. Um, or if there is a human being doing it, we need to have another human being with a different set of values making those assessments. Um, so this debate is ongoing. Um, AI is going to be pre-trained. Um, firstly, on biased data, most of the training data, for instance, is produced by English-speaking uh, white people. Um, uh, you want to take it on a global context. That's basically what it's been trained on, because that's the vast majority of the written content on the internet. Um, obviously, that comes from a cultural context, which may not be suitable in different parts of the world. Um, or it may be suitable for particular types of people um, uh, within the world. Um, so the training data is inherently biased um, and the human kind of uh, trainers that have said yes, no to these outputs, of course, they're going to carry in their biases left, right, up, down, whatever sort of political or social or ethical dimension you want to apply to it. 
they're not going to come at it in an, in an objective way because that itself is a mirage. So yes, there is bias inherent in AI. Uh, the question I would say though is, is it a better form of bias than a human managed process? Because um, let's not forget, we're not comparing against perfection here. Um, we're comparing against a human process that is uh, self-evidently uh, and historically massively biased. Um, and I would say, you know what, um, we probably would be, um, if, you, if you kind of added all the pluses and added all the minuses together with the, the lens of bias when it comes to AI, we would probably still err on a side that it's slightly better than a human-only approach. Because uh, a human-only approach, we know straight away, not only is biased, but it has loads of hidden biases that we haven't even been able to articulate. Um, but that is not to say that it's not a legitimate question to ask, um, because for sure, the more we dig into how um, these AIs have been trained, the more we realize that, yeah, crikey, we're not going to be able to really um, cleanse it of bias, so to speak. It may not even be possible to do, um, in which case, what is that? where does that lead us? No one's got an answer to that question as of yet. We should have another conversation about that entire yes. topic, that's <laughs> right? Because because that's 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 that was that was extremely articulate. That was very I interesting. Agree yeah. with you. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and um, the interesting opportunity is for us to be able to see bias more clearly um, in both places, in humans and in machines. Uh, and the further we dig into the question, the more interesting it becomes because the biases are, are historical and extraordinary um, and end up expressed by a machine or expressed by a human. And, and all I know for sure is that the bias that comes out of a machine is just more precise than the bias that comes out of a human <laughs> Right, it's better. It's, be it's, it's better executed, right? It's, it'll That's get right. To, it'll, it'll get, it'll get bias, to the bias on steroids. <laughs> it'll get to the bias decision more quickly, you know. So, oh. in, in some respects, it accelerates us to a decision we're going to make anyway. So, yes, yeah. That's my current operating thing. Same stupid stuff, but faster. yes, right, <laughs> but faster. I do apologize. Speaking of time, we are at time. So, Hung, this has been fantastic. John, did you want to? I don't want to cut you off. So, did you have anything else you wanted I, to add? I, I, I don't have anything else to say. It's been it's been a while getting to this conversation, Hung. I really appreciate you taking the time out to do it, and. Um, 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 need you to hurry up and get to San Francisco one of these days. Hey, listen, I think that might happen, actually. Um, uh, there, there was some conversation I had recently with somebody uh, who was doing some sort of event and they were talking about potentially getting me out there. So, uh, so, so yeah, if it does happen, I'll certainly let you guys know. Yeah, yeah, awesome. add, a couple, add a couple of days on the schedule. Yeah, hey, awesome. I'd love to, to go visit uh, uh, you and Heather up there. So uh, we'll, we'll, if that does happen, I'll make sure that that visit occurs as well. Great. Great. <laughs> okay. Thanks, well, tell our listeners <clears throat> about uh, recruiting brain food, how they can become part of your community, and how they can reach out to you directly if they have any questions. Yeah, absolutely. So everyone's welcome to subscribe to Recruiting Brain Food. It's a weekly newsletter. Um, it's lots of things, but the main thing is the weekly newsletter, which drops on Sunday. Um, and that's free. Um, so just go to recruitingbrainfood.com. What I do is essentially try and find 
um, 10 articles out there on the internet that you will not have seen. Um, that's going to give you a little bit of uh, mental stimulation that's related to recruiting. So it's recruiting brain food for your week ahead. Uh, go ahead and subscribe to that. Um, email me on that email once you subscribe to it. And I should be able to get back to you on that. Lovely, Great. lovely. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Hung. We've really appreciated this conversation. It's my pleasure and honor. Thank you very much, Gene. So we've been talking with Hung Lee, who is the curator of Recruiting Brain Food um, on today's episode of The Work. Thanks very much and tune in next week. Bye-bye now.